Welcome to Is There Really Truth and Justice for All? with your host, Jeff Stein. This program really does uncover the sometime myth that all are innocent until proven guilty. The truth is that many innocent people are found guilty of a crime that they did not commit. We discuss the judicial system, its flaws, and where it could be made better. Now, here is Jeff Stein. Good morning, and welcome to the 16th live episode of Is There Really Truth and Justice for All? There are many wrongful arrests and convictions in the United States, and we like to talk about things to work to address problems with the integrity of those involved in the wrongful convictions and things that can be fixed and how. We will talk to victims of wrongful arrests and convictions, witnesses, people involved in the judicial process, and try to create an understanding that our current judicial system is not truth and justice for all. And that everyone needs to be aware this widespread problem in our country does not discriminate against race, religion, sex, or nationality. Anyone can become a victim of the judicial system because of false or coerced statements, ineffective assistance of counsel, lackadaisical police work, prosecutorial misconduct, jailhouse snitches, deceitful witnesses, and even dishonest expert witnesses. Keep in mind that this is a live show. Feel free to call or email questions or topics that you would like to discuss or hear discussed on our show today or in the future. Today, our guest is a colleague and friend of mine, Kitty Haley. Good morning, Kitty. Great to have you on the show, and thank you for joining us today. How are you this morning? I'm doing great, Jeff. How are you doing? I am good and very glad that you take the, taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us, so thank you. You're welcome. Kitty, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Kitty Haley is a tenured investigator who is also a big advocate for professionalism in the private investigation industry. She is an award-winning writer and author of the acclaimed Code of Professional Conduct, Standards and Ethics for the Investigative Professional. While ethics is a passion of hers, her work, uh, a lot of her work revolves around the wrongful, wrongfully incarcerated and civil rights work. She has come full circle, a child of the 60s, when protests were abundant against war and aggression. She now puts her passions to use assisting to right the wrongs of society through civil rights-related investigations. Many things have not changed since the early 60s. There is still inequality. Excessive force has caused so much pain in minority communities. Both Kinney and I are still relentlessly uh, trying to work to convict the right people and exonerate those uh, wrongfully wrongfully incarcerated. With a background as an investigator with the Federal Defender Capital Habeas Unit, Kitty has been a part of teams that walked several people off of death row who should not have been incarcerated for those crimes. So her life's work has been to work with her passions and to do it ethically. Today, we will talk to Kitty about several of her cases and our current writings discussing the role of the investigator in the larger scheme of the legal system. Kitty, is there anything else that you would like to add about your background that I may have left out? No, you really covered it. Thank you, Jeff. Good. For our listeners, did you know that there are approximately 2 million people in jail or prisons in the United States? And there is no perfect formula that can be applied on how many are innocent, but it is believed to be anywhere from 2% to as much as 10%. Even on the low end, that equates to 40,000, or on the high end, it could be as much as 200,000 innocent men and women who have been wrongfully convicted. And that does not include those who have been wrongfully charged of a crime either. So those numbers are much higher. There's really no one better to have on the show today than Kitty Haley. 
And just on that note, the National Registry of Exonerations states that there are over 2,522 exonerations, and that is 22,315 years lost. These numbers are, are just crazy. Imagine how many more there are. And of those 47, of those 47 of the exonerees have spent 30 plus years behind bars wrongfully convicted. And for these very reasons, the defense must conduct its own investigation instead of relying on the investigation conducted by the prosecutorial team. And with that being said, who better to chat with than Kitty Haley? And Kitty is an expert in the field of criminal defense investigations and is known throughout the country. So why don't we start off with Kitty, how and when did you first get involved with criminal defense work? Well, I actually have been an investigator for a very, very long time, and my early work was the mundane. It was the automobile accident, the uh, domestic squabble, the missing child, that work that just about, I guess, 80% of people in our field actually work with, the everyday things. But when my children finally were out of the house and I felt that they were safe, I began to work in the criminal world. I didn't want to touch it earlier than that because I really was concerned that my work might come home with me and somehow or another impact my kids. So now, without children in the house, with an opportunity to be um, a little more inquisitive and hit areas that were a little more dangerous, I started doing criminal investigation. For some of the attorneys that I worked with before who were doing many things, and um, that eventually led me to the Federal Defender Office. And how long were you at the Federal Defender's Office, and what was some of the work that you did there? Well, I, I joined them around 2006. Um, it's, an, it's a little interesting story just as a background. I was dealing a lot of, with death. My, my mother, who I was taking care of, um, was not the primary caregiver, but my sister and I were caring for her. Uh, she passed away. My husband passed away. And I was kind of at a loss. I was an investigator. I was doing work in civil rights. I was active but I was overwhelmed with the concept of death, and I needed a reason to get up in the morning, and what better reason than to help other people. So I started working with the Federal Defender Capital Habeas Unit in Philadelphia. Um, For those in the audience that don't understand, Capital Habeas is, uh, it basically means um, we have the body, capital meaning the body or the, the, the head, and habeas meaning we have. It's a Latin phrase, and it says that the judicial system has um, possession of the actual body. The, the judicial system is in control of the person, and those persons may be wrongfully incarcerated, and capital meaning that their lives will be taken because they have received the death penalty. So I started working with the federal defender, working only on death penalty cases, those persons who were incarcerated and sentenced to death. And I had the honor of working with some of the greatest attorneys and investigators that I have ever worked with in the country. And we worked tirelessly to reinvestigate cases of persons who had been in prison for more than 
8, 10, 12, 15, 20, 25 years, and we went back to the beginning, and we started with the crime, and we redid the investigation that should have been done the first time but wasn't. And what we found was horrific. There were so many men and women who were wrongfully convicted throughout the United States. Because remember, we're federal. So we didn't work just in Pennsylvania. As a matter of fact, most of my work was in Missouri and Arkansas. So I got a really hard, good look at a part of the world that I had never seen before. And I was able to help by doing just a thorough, methodical investigation that no one else had done up until that point. That's amazing. And, and it's really interesting. Um, and and I, I know I see this often when people or when you're investigating cases that you're surprised at the, the shoddy work that was done previously, especially on a death row case. And I, I've worked death row cases uh, or, or the trial stage during a, a capital um, penalty case, and they last a long time. There's a lot of time and effort that that's put in there that should be put in there anyway. And trying to do that all over again 10 years later, 20 years later, 30 years later is that much more of a, a challenge for the investigator. So it, it becomes more difficult when memories have faded and evidence has disappeared and no longer available. That's a lot of work. That's a challenging job. You know, more than that, Jeff, the, the problem is that people don't necessarily live in a reality. They live in their own reality. They don't recognize that they are a part of a greater world. And so frequently you would go to interview a witness from 18 or 20 years ago, and almost inevitably the first words of their mouth, out of their mouth, are, um, oh, uh, that's still going on? I, I put that behind me. Well, they may have put it behind them, but there's still a living, breathing person sitting on death row waiting any minute to get the call that their execution is imminent. And they may not be guilty. And the very fact that the witness has stopped thinking about it because it's inconvenient or distasteful is horrific. It just shows how selfish people can be and how out of touch with reality. Their world is not the only world. They live in a greater cosmos and we all have a responsibility to that cosmos we have to think of other people we have to think past ourselves and once you can convince them that their words are still important and their recollections are still important and once you have a a level of communication where you can finally talk to that individual the things that you find are amazing you find that they have already spoken with investigators but didn't bother to tell them because the right questions were not asked. So my job as an investigator is to understand the case fully, to give the witness an opportunity to talk, and to prompt them by asking the right open-ended questions so that they can jog their own memory and keep talking. If I have an interview that's 15 minutes long, that's not an interview, that's an introduction. If I can talk to somebody for half an hour or an hour or an hour and a half and come back a second time or maybe a third time, then I'm really doing an investigation. Uh, you, you hit the nail on the head, absolutely. And how often do, do you hear about occasions where somebody's being tried for murder and their attorney goes and meets with them the day of the trial 
or, you know, spends 15 minutes with them, you know, at, at, at some prelim um, hearing that, you know, they, they never had the time to spend to really do a detailed investigation and conversation investigation with the defendant himself. Right. A lot of time. Yeah, let, of time. let me just give you one example of that, if I can. Um, Please do. I had a, a client, and it, this was the first client that I had when I went to the Defenders. I, I'm going to tell you right now that I can't mention names, and I honor the confidentiality of my clients. I think the word private and private investigator means a lot. We keep our cases close to the vest. These are not for publication. The instances might be, but the people can't be. But there was one particular young man who I started working with who was accused of multiple murders. And to be quite honest with you, he probably committed a couple of them. But the one that was a death penalty case was the one that he was innocent of almost completely. And the evidence and the information that we were gathering proved that. Now, did he deserve to be out on the street? Absolutely not. But did he deserve to be killed for his crimes? The answer to that is no. And we found that the reason he was susceptible to being charged with this crime was because of communication. He was a drug addict. He was so high on drugs all the time that he was not in possession of his right faculties. And there are so many people that are addicted to opioids today that make poor decisions because of these drugs that they cannot be honestly convicted of the crimes that they are accused of because they had no knowledge that they even committed them. And that is, of course, one of the defenses. So in this particular case, I kept talking to this young man's wife, and she insisted that there was no way that he was on drugs. It couldn't possibly be that he was on drugs. And I went to her house one afternoon to just speak with her again because it didn't make sense that he said he was into drugs. Everyone else said he was into drugs, but his main witness, his wife, who was in the house with him, would not admit that he was doing drugs. And I walked in, and she was sitting at her kitchen counter. She was very friendly. We had already established a rapport and a relationship. She asked me if I wanted a cup of coffee, and I said, no, just a glass of water would be nice. And she said, great, because I have to take my pills. And she poured us each a glass of water. And she brought out a bunch of vials, and she started taking her pills. And I said, what are all those drugs for? And she said, oh, no, no, they're not drugs. They're prescriptions. And I hesitated. And I said, really? Why don't you call them drugs? She said, because they're not illegal. The doctor gave them to me. They're prescriptions. And it was like oh my God, all of a sudden a window opened up and I reached across the table and took her hand and held up a vial and I said, okay, uh, and I'm going to use a phony name, did, um, did Carl have prescriptions? And she said, oh yeah, he had dozens and dozens of prescriptions. I said, and he took those regularly? She said, oh, yeah, of course he did. Of course. I said, do you, do you have a list of those prescriptions? She said, oh, I have better than that. I still have the vials. I never throw anything away. And she went and hunted up vials of opioids 
that were prescribed to this man that he was abusing for years. He was so high on opioids. And I said to her, could you honestly say that he would get high on these prescriptions? And she said, of course. He got high on them every day. He took too many of them all the time. And I said, okay, now I'm going to ask you another question. Can you tell me if he got high on drugs? And she said, no, of course not. He didn't take anything illegal. Wow. And it it was amazing. It's a matter of communication, language, and persistence. If I hadn't gone back, if she hadn't needed to take her prescriptions at that moment, I never would have found that the drugs he were taking were legally prescribed to him, but he was abusing them by taking too many. That's unbelievable. And, and we see this often, and it's, it's um, a similar situation with juveniles who in the past were sentenced to life in prison without being uh, eligible for parole that the Supreme Court in 2012 de- deemed that unconstitutional because their brains haven't developed. And there's, there's a lot of, um, I guess, scientific discussion about when does the brain fully develop and is that 21 years of age? So somebody who's 18 or 19, were they really able to make some of the right decisions? It's, it's an interesting debate that will continue to go on in our legal profession for a long time. And, and you know, even though it was deemed that a, a child cannot make a decision um, that warrants a lifetime of incarceration, there's still a process that these young men and women have to go through to get out of the legal uh, system. They are still there incarcerated. So while the decision was made, they have to make appeals to allow them to go back into society. As a matter of fact, two weeks ago I met a young man who had been incarcerated for 16 years, and he was only 32 years old. Wow. Right. So he, his crime took place when he was 15, the member of a gang, not responsible for many of the things that he did because he did it for the camaraderie of friends since he had no family that was responsible to him. And he committed a crime. He admits he committed a crime. So did everyone else who was with him at the time. And he was sentenced to a life in prison, and only because of the intervention of an influential person was he eventually able to be free 30, at the age of 32, 16 years later. So half of his life incarcerated. What a waste of a life. What a terrible, terrible waste of a life. And, and the, the men and women that we need, and you know this, Jeff, because you do this, uh, sometimes you'll, you'll go to SCI Green, which is where most of death row is located in Pennsylvania, and you'll meet with men and women who are in their 40s and 50s and 60s, and they are wonderful human beings. They are people who have reached a potential in prison that they were never allowed to reach outside of prison. They have studied, they have educated themselves, and the mistakes that they made when they were 16, 17, 18, and 19 years old are those that have judged them for the rest of their lives, and yet they are now productive members of their own little society, but Mm -hmm. interested and interesting people. And, And that's interesting, Kitty, because the United States has more people in prison than any other domestic country in the world. 
and our sentences are longer than any other country, any other domesticated country in the world. So what are we doing wrong? And, and on top of that, we don't, as they like to say, although there's there's few situations, and I, th- I think you, you just touched on a few, but most people go to prison and they learn how to become better criminals in, in, in a lot of cases. We don't do a good job. I don't believe we do a good job rehabilitating everyone like we should. I think there's there's a lot of people. In fact, I was just watching, and I, I forget what prison this was, um, and I'm sure there are several, where they actually get college degrees, where they can earn a college degree while being incarcerated. And it was really neat to see that the families can come and attend their graduation. First, they have to get their associates, and then after they graduate from that, they get their uh, bachelor's. And I think that's fabulous. Like, so when, when they do get released when they're in their 30s, 40s, 50s, they now have a college degree behind them. But for the most part, our system is flawed, and I don't think we do a good job being able to, to rehabilitate them and get them ready to, to be back in the public and, you know, to hold a, a, a good job and so forth. Would you agree with that, or do you think, oh, you know— Oh, completely. Not not only do we not do a good job of education, but I today received a, um, a letter from a gentleman incarcerated in Virginia, and he's older. He's in his late 60s. He's not well. And because he's in an institution that's privately run, the um, systems and the guards are allowed to mete out their own punishment to the inmates and you know he's there he's in prison he's going to be there for the rest of his life but it's not necessary to take his medications away from him it's not necessary to make him stand out in the cold to wait for his pills to arrive it's not necessary to take a cane away from a man who has a vertigo problem and can't walk without it but these are things that are done and they're little in the scheme of things but they're major to the individuals so the the little horrors that occur within the system that allow sadists to uh, met out punishment because they want to, not because it was prescribed or necessary. And, you know, we're still talking about human beings. These are not animals. These are people who made mistakes. And, yes, other people suffered. And I believe me, my heart goes out to every victim and every victim's family. But it is not necessary to be... Um, a sadist or um, just a, a horrible person, it's okay to treat people with kindness. And maybe if we start doing something like that, we might find that there's less crime because people are given that which they need before a crime is committed. Yeah, absolutely. And and th- that's just it. I, they are not treated with respect. And again, we're, we're the United States. We're, we're supposed to be looked upon as far as one of the, the best domesticated countries in the world. But our prison systems are definitely not to those standards. And they don't treat the inmates with respect. They look down on them. And, and I understand they're in there. You know, they, they committed a crime, whether it's drugs, um, you know, anything. You know, they're, they're doing, they're serving their time if they're guilty, if they are in fact guilty. They're serving their time and doing their punishment. It doesn't mean that we should treat them um, with, with no respect and no dignity and make them stand out in the cold and, you know, th- hold back medicine. And it's just, it, that's the unfortunate thing. And we see this all too often, and it becomes, and it really starts in the in the in the uh, courtroom, I, I believe. And 
I just recently was at a PCRA hearing, but I say this all the time, especially in these in, in these PCRA cases and any type of appeal and all of the work that, that you did with the, the federal habeas unit, is it becomes adversarial, right? You find new information that could um, exonerate your client, and all they do is try to fight it, and they argue it, and they intimidate. And in, in fact, um, one of these recent cases, they just they called our witness who was, who had recanted, and they called and threatened him, and said, "You're going to switch sides, and you're going to go in. You know, if this guy gets out, you're going to go in." trying to intimidate him, whether it was with perjury or say that he they're going to charge the murder on him. So what did he do? He didn't show. <laughs> he didn't he didn't come to court. And what do you what are you going to do? Get a bench warrant and keep him keep him in jail? Then he's not going to talk. So it really right. it becomes a challenge. But why is it so adversarial where the prosecution, the district attorney's office can't look at it and say, wow, you may be right. Maybe there is something going on here. Let's work together. And it, it's unfortunate. And I always use the analogy of a football game. It, it's not the fourth quarter and we're throwing a Hail Mary and, and one team has to win. It's trying to do what's right, both for whether it's the defendant who's wrongfully incarcerated, but it's the victim. And if that person is wrongfully convicted and, and being held there, that means there's a guilty person out on the streets. And that affects so many people because the innocent person who's now behind bars has a family who he doesn't get to see his children grow up. His He doesn't get to go to his parents' funeral. Like there's such a overwhelming um, uh, water flow of, of just a domino effect, I guess the word I'm looking for, it just continues to go like that. It's, it's sad. It really is. I, I agree. And, and I think it's, it's um, indicative of our culture and our society today where both political sides are either right or wrong. And if you don't agree with me, then you're wrong. And that's not necessarily true. There is middle ground. And it's really time that we found it both in politics and in the um, the uh, judicial system and in what we do every day. As a matter of fact, I, I get probably one or two inquiries a month from young people or older people wanting to switch professions and become investigators. And I guess it's a little bit of the CSI effect. Everybody watches television or um, Netflix or whatever, and they see every other show has something to do with police investigators and crimes. And, and you know, here's a reality. Death is too easy. It's all over the place on the screen. And the, re- the reality is that we don't respect it sufficiently. We make light of it. The person who has just suffered the loss of a loved one on television grieves for a total of 3.4 minutes and then moves on to um, a love interest in the, um, uh, the police department. There is, there is no respect given all the way around to both sides of the issue. So to those people interested in going into investigation, I say to them, do it. But don't think you're going to be a TV star. Don't think that there is glory here. The glory is very, very private. Sometimes the days are very, very lonely. There are days that the only people I talk to are witnesses because I have to spend hours in the field. 
I have to drive miles into the foothills of Pennsylvania to interview one witness who I hope will speak with me. And sometimes that conversation goes for minutes or sometimes for hours and hours and hours. And then I have to drive all the way back by myself. And it's lonely. But what I have accomplished is really wonderful. So your satisfaction has to be self-satisfaction. You can't get it in the media. You can't get it in the glory of, of, of some television program that extols your virtues. It's just hard work. And when you're finished doing those interviews on that day, you go to bed and you get up and you do interviews on the next day and on the next day, and on the next day. And you read, and you read, and you read, because every one of these cases had a trial that already occurred. And if you don't know what happened, how can you possibly figure out what to do next? So you're in the middle of a novel, and you're trying to figure out what happened, but you have the benefit of hindsight. So you've got the first several chapters, and if you're intelligent and persistent, then you write the next several chapters while you're doing it. And maybe nobody actually reads that book, but you wrote it. So there's something very, very good about that. Yeah, and no, I, I totally agree. And it is a challenge and, and sometimes some, some boring reading going through, you know, one, one person after another. But I agree with you. One of the greatest feelings for me is when I'm in the courtroom, my client is found innocent or wins an appeal or an exoneration. And um, having the opportunity to drive them home from prison or the courthouse, that is extremely rewarding. Um, but it doesn't happen often. And it's a long process to get there. We're years. Um, I know one of the death row cases I'm working on has, I've been working on it for almost seven years now. And we just had one hearing last month and it's going to be continued in January. So it's, it's a long process. It's not easy. Yeah. Let me just tell you one example of that. I, before I went to the Capitol Habeas Unit, I worked with a law firm out of Washington, D.C. on a pro bono case. It was pro bono for them. I, I took a lesser fee because I realized that they were working for free. And they were working with this gentleman who had been incarcerated for probably about eight to ten years at that point. That was almost 30 years ago that I started wow. the case. And... When I went to the federal defender, they were taking the case up, and they were monitoring it, and so they assigned me to it, so I continued with the case. After I left the federal defender more than eight years later, I continued to work with the same law firm on the same case. And I, I'm guessing it wasn't 30, it was 20 years, to be quite honest about it, but 20 years later, I was sitting in a coffee shop with a friend, having a cup of coffee. I knew I had done the work that I did, but there's so many cases you can't follow them all. You just work on them and, and pro provide your information to the attorneys. And I got a telephone call. And again, I'm not going to use the same name because of, of privacy, but this voice on the phone called my cell phone and said, is this Kitty? And I said, yeah. I, who is this, please? And he said, this is... Robert Johnson, and I said, excuse me? He said, yeah, I'm, I'm on my way home from prison. Oh I was God. just released, and he called me on his way home. And, you know, 
my reaction I, was visceral. I just sat there and started to cry. I could not believe that I had been a part of this man's life, helping him to leave, and that he thought enough of me on the ride home that he had to call Kitty, and he had to let Kitty know that all of my work over all of these years had finally come to fruition, and he was free. And it was just the most brilliant moment. It lasted for a moment. He continued to to drive home with the um, with the attorneys who had walked him out of out of prison, and I continued to have my cup of coffee and apologize to the person that I was sitting across from as I cried and sniffed and felt just absolutely wonderful. Oh my God, what a moment! That is, uh, I love those moments, and they don't happen that often. But when they do, it's it, it's. It's a pleasure, and that's that's a great story to hear, and and that's why we do what we do. Um, that's I th- I think you know it's it's our passion, it's in our heart, it's in our DNA to try to help people and right the wrong. And I commend you for all the work that you've done on that. That's fabulous. Well, thanks, Jeff. You do the same thing, and and you know there are so many of us out there that are doing it, and um, you know I'm going to say we're we're unsung heroes because the. Um, the attorneys walk them out of prison. There are stories written about them. There are uh, sagas and movies and books. But that's only a small portion of the people who we actually work for and help. And and the thing is that you don't hear about the men and women who we walked off of death row back into general population because they were not mentally or physically fit to go out into the world again, but they didn't have to be executed. Their lives didn't have to be taken, and they still now had an opportunity to do something that they couldn't do for 8 or 10 or 20 years, and that's to physically touch and hug their children or their spouses because the isolation of death row is just so horrible. Um, an interesting little story. One man I met early in my um, experience on death row was um, was someone who we hoped to walk off of the row, but to this day, and it's over 20 years later, he's still there waiting for an execution date. But I, he came into the, um, the visiting area where he is still shackled. He's still behind five-inch thick glass, and I'm on the other side of the glass. And he came in carrying a Bible and a Koran, and they were underlined with colors of, you know, red and blue pen and, and ink, and he was studying them, and he was, he was comparing them. And I said to him, that's interesting. Were you involved in the church or any church before you came into prison? And he said, yeah, I was, but I found out that, you know, there's so much that we have that's all alike. I'm I'm doing a personal study, and I, I want to compare and contrast. And I said, well, why is that? How did you come to that point 20 years after being incarcerated? He said, oh, oh I've been doing this since I came in. He said, you know, we all have to pick our own kind of crazy, and I guess this is my kind of crazy because you will go crazy here. And if you don't pick it, it will pick you. And so I decided to do something that was constructive and that made me a better person. He said, but there are people here, crazy overtakes them, and they become worse than they were when they came. 
and I just wasn't going to be that person. So, yeah, I think in life we all pick our own kind of crazy. Wow. And, and you know, I, I recently I spoke at a, um, a symposium in Chicago on death, um, capital cases and civil rights. And one of the keynote speakers was in prison for over 10 years. And the, mm-hmm. the crime happened when he was 17, but he wasn't charged until he was 19. And he didn't do it. He was wrongfully convicted. But mm-hmm. um, so he got out when he was in his early 19, I guess almost 30 years old. And so he's in his early 30s and he still suffers from PTSD. And he, he received a, a, a nice lump sum of money, you know, for every year that he was incarcerated, wrongfully convicted. But it doesn't do it justice, you know, talking to him and having a heart to heart with him. And, you know, you can't get back that time. And he spent time in the hole. You know, they they try to um, trying to think how to say this. They work with the DAs and the prosecutors a lot of times, you know, and, and they try to make things difficult for the people who say that they're innocent. And he felt that he was. Um, set up and he ended up spending 30 days in the hole and this is when he you know a person who's in his 20s so he gets out he gets a lot of money and he still goes for counseling and he has PTSD and he can't get a job you know people still don't want to hire him it's it's a challenge it is so difficult and again this is part of how we we grow the system you know to um, in in a bad way not the right way Mm-hmm. I, I agree completely. You know, it's interesting. I don't want people to get the impression that we're just a bunch of tree huggers that want everybody to be free and equal and whatever. We, you know, I, I respect all of those victims in this country and, and anywhere who have suffered loss or, or pain or injury at the hand of another. There are people out there who are not nice, but... What we don't do as a country is to fairly treat everyone. And if there was equality in the system, in the way people are treated, I I think we would have more people agreeing with us, you and I, that um, humanity is important, people shouldn't be killed, and even those that are guilty deserve representation. You know, I'm not the judge and the jury. I'm the finder of fact. And and because I also do a lot of public speaking, there are former police officers who have become investigators who will say things to me like, how can you do what you do? We lock them up and you get them off. And you know what? That's not true. They lock them up. What I do is reinvestigate a case. And I always tell people, If you did a righteous job, if you did not withhold evidence, if you did not just want a collar, if you did not just want to win, if you didn't skew things so that they were no longer true, then you have nothing to worry about. But if you did skew things, if you did withhold evidence, if you did taint evidence, if you did wrongfully accuse and therefore wrongfully convict, then shame on you because I'm going to find it out and you're the one that's going to suffer because we're going to right that wrong. 
So all I ever ask of the judicial system is that you do your job fairly and rightly. It's not about winning and losing. You're right. We're not in competition with the district attorney. We should be working hand in hand because if I'm going to work for the DA or if I'm going to work for a private uh, attorney on the defense side, the information and the evidence that I obtain is going to be exactly the same because facts are facts. Evidence is evidence. It's the interpretation of it that is used by the district attorney against the accused and by the defense attorney for the accused. But that evidence and information doesn't change. That bullet has the same striations on it. That, um, that blood splatter has the same direction. That DNA has the same outcome. We don't find information for one side. We find information that is a fact. Now, truth is another question. I'm not sure what truth is because truth changes from person to person. Your truth is not necessarily my truth, but the, the information and the evidence is all that a good investigator can find. And if that investigator finds that which is there, then, then we've solved our case, whether it's for or against our client. But there should be no disputing facts. That's an interesting way of looking at it and makes a lot of sense. I, I agree with you. And, you know, I, I always like to say on almost every show, I am I am pro-law enforcement. I'm not anti-law enforcement. And I talk about friends who are, are current and, and retired um, detectives who did a, a fabulous job, a great job. And it's, you know, something that we all as, as citizens need to appreciate all of our emergency service personnel, you know, be it the police department, the fire department, the ambulance, the rescue squad, of course, our military, um, you know, we wouldn't wouldn't be here today without them. So I'm I'm pro law enforcement. But with that being said, Kitty, I know a lot of your work has taken you all over and that you're aware of a lot of the, the past and, and current corruption with the Philadelphia Police Department, Chicago and some others in the news lately. Do these situations, the, the corruption, play a role in, in some of the cases that you've worked on, some of the things that you've seen over the years? Oh, so many of them. It's really a shame because you can't, well, it's like anything. You can't generalize. There is no way you can say that all cops are bad or all cops are good. We need law enforcement. And those men and women, just like the people in the armed services who give of their time and, and, and give up their lives to benefit others, are wonderful people. But they're is a small handful that has tainted the gene pool in the police department. People who are more interested in making arrests than they are in finding out who actually did something. And it's, it's a combination of greed, laziness, and um, uh, misapplied um, morality. And I, I find it offensive because it's there all the time. It's the same police officers doing the same crimes, putting people away because they want to, not because they're guilty. It's not everyone. And, and I think we have to start to differentiate. And that, that wall of blue that just says, okay, they're a fellow cop, so we have to support them, is just as guilty as the person who, who committed the crime. You can't allow someone to do something wrong and know it 
and support them just because they wear the same uniform you wear. And I find that so true all over the place. So, yeah, Pennsylvania has its share, New Jersey has its share, every state has its share. But just like there are good and bad people in, in every walk of life, we just have to be discerning and, uh, and call them out when we see it and not allow them to continue and do it over and over again. Again, it's the same people. In case after case of civil rights abuse, it's the same police officers in every jurisdiction, and it's a crime that they're allowed to repeat their crimes. Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, Philadelphia, one of the, the big things, and I know a lot of my work is in Philadelphia, and you see it over and over again, their police union has such a good contract in place. It is so difficult to terminate somebody in Philadelphia. They really need to come in and and, and that. I would encourage the Philadelphia Police Union to want to take this and and become more proactive and and um, show the citizens that they want to cooperate and renegotiate their contract and reword their contract so that these bad apples and there's there's very few like you said. But when they are a bad apple and they take a bite of that poison apple, it, it's they can't change. They can't they can't turn around and look back. They already took that bite and they finish eating that apple and they become more corrupt. And mm-hmm. it is in, in, in speaking with them. And I, I've had Jeffrey Walker, who was one of the convicted um, Philadelphia narcotics cops who um, served federal time um, for corruption. But he, he stated that it goes from generation to generation in Philadelphia and in some of the units that it just it continues. And so they really need to overhaul a lot. And, and I hope they do, because it's it's a great police department, one of the biggest in the country. So I hope they can kind of right the wrong for themselves and take a public stance, a proactive public stance on that. Well, just on another but related note. In 2002, I wrote the first edition of Code of Professional Conduct Standards and Ethics for the Investigative Profession, and it's a, it's a book on ethics to be used by investigators, and, and I did it because we had people in our industry who were just capitalizing on the fact that they could gain information, they had access to information, they had access to private um, data on people, and they were abusing that privilege. And I thought, you know, how can I be in a profession that I can't be proud of? How can I be in a profession where people are tapping phones and, and, and installing cameras illegally and prying um, on people who were actually innocent of any crime at all? And so I wrote that book of ethics because I wanted people to live up to my standards. It's, it, there are no consequences if you don't do what that book of ethics says. I mean, it's not enforceable in any law enforcement or by any court. But it's a standard that we can live by. And I found that people started acting better, doing less illegal things, doing, um, being more conscious of the way they handled themselves and the way they treated others. And I think it would behoove the Philadelphia Police Department and others to be proud of the best of the best and to try to eliminate those people that cast shame upon them because they're part of the community and they owe the community 
a, a duty of responsibility to uphold the law and to protect its people. And it, that is not done by shooting someone in the back when they're running away because you don't take someone into custody by shooting them in the back. You take somebody into custody by confronting them with their crime and arresting them and letting them stand trial through a just system. So, you know, it's a matter of what are our priorities and what are we teaching and what are we teaching our children? You know, how are we going to make this a better world for everybody? And that may really sound soppy, but, you know, we're not all going to be here forever. And there's another generation that deserves a lot more than we're leaving them. So it would be really kind of lovely if we could clean up our act before we have to pass it on. I agree. And and Kitty, one of the things I love so much about you is you articulate yourself so well. And that's why I I believe one of the reasons why you're so successful in in your profession and and writing the books is just because you're really so well-spoken and good at articulating and and getting the point across. It it just, it's a pleasure listening to you. Um, I know I need to, I've I've read some of your books, but I really need to read more of them just just to... um, educate myself more on how Kitty thinks because it's, it's really you. impressive. It's very nice. <laughs> and, and you mentioned one of the questions I had written down and you, start, you, you sort of answered it, but my question was how and why did you start writing books? And I've been talking about writing a book for the past year and I started, then I stalled. And do you have any words of wisdom for me or anyone else who is interested in, in writing a book and how to get started? Yeah, and this, these are not my words. These came from one of my clients. I, I located three missing children for a gentleman from the country of Colombia, not Colombia in the United States, but Colombia in South America. And three of his children had been stolen, and it took me almost nine months to locate them, but I did, and I was able to reunite the father with the children. And because he had to continue to work to pay bills, to pay our bills, to to uh, keep his sanity while we were looking for his children somewhere in the United States. And we had nothing. We didn't even have a state to start with. Um, it took a lot of work. And I said to him, Carlos, how do you continue to do what you do? You've published three books in the six months that I've known you. Uh, because he had to for his job in order to to do manuals and whatever. And he said, well, I write something every day or I touch my work every day by revisiting it, rereading it, reorganizing it. At the time, it was pre-computers, so he used index cards, but today he would use... Um, you know, a computer program and, and put a thought on each individual page and then he would reorganize his thoughts and every day he would add something or reorganize it or take something away or um, have a thought that was random and just put it in at the end and he continually touched it every day and one day it was finished because wow. you don't ignore it. It's a discipline. <laughs> And if it's 10 minutes a day or two minutes a day or two hours a day that you set aside that before I go to bed or the minute I wake up, I'm going to touch my book. I'm going to touch my writing. I'm going to look at it or I'm going to organize it. All of a sudden, it's done. And that's really the way that I did it. I would, I'm an early riser, so I'd wake up at 5 and I'd go sit at my computer and I'd pull up the manuscript that I was working on that day. 
and I would either reread it from the beginning or pick a page at random and really fine-tune it or put down a couple of thoughts that I thought needed to be done or maybe I would just cut and paste and rearrange all the pages. But all of a sudden, two pages became 250 pages and there was nothing else to write. It was done. And wow. I think that's what you do. Well, that's good advice. I appreciate that. Was the first book that you wrote, was it on ethics or was it something else? Oh, no. I've been writing for a long time. The first book I wrote, uh, well, actually, I've been writing articles for years and years for uh, professional journals. And I've got to give a shout out to a wonderful lady, Grace Castle, who was the woman who got me started on it. She said, you like to read, you like to write, why don't you write an article for the Legal Investigator magazine, which belongs to the National Association of Legal Investigators? And I said, I, I don't know, I, I've never written an article before. She said, just pick a topic and do it. She gave me a topic, and I did it. And she edited it and sent it back to me. Uh, she edited it in red ink, and it looked like somebody bled all over my paper. But um, I learned that I could, I could write, and so I started writing a bunch of articles, and because people don't write articles and they're in need, I got published a lot, and my topics were pretty timely and about the work I was doing. And so the first actual book I put out for the investigative industry was a book of a compilation of the short of the articles I had written, but I put them together in the, the form of a teaching manual. And then I soon was asked to participate in writing a chapter for um, advanced forensic civil investigations and then advanced forensic criminal investigations, which were both uh, anthologies of work by many investigators that covered a variety of disciplines. I did something for a, a book on corporate um, investigations, and then I put out my second book, which was actually the first book of the Code of Professional Conduct. And I've had three editions of that, and this summer I put out my newest book, which is Conversation with an Investigator, which is a very irreverent, simple, casual look at my investigative field and what I wish somebody had talked to me about when I first started in the business over 40 years ago. Wow, that's impressive. And I, I know I've written some articles for some publications. In fact, I think we're both co-authors in one of Intelnet's books, um, but I have yet to write my own and I will take your inspiration uh, to try to finish what I, I started a long time ago. This past hour went so fast that I kept getting notifications that it was time for a commercial break. And I said, you know, we're really on a roll. Let's skip this. So we just flew by this past hour without any breaks because you were so intriguing and it was it was such a good conversation. Um, so we're about to wrap up. Before we do, I'm, I'm not sure if you're taking on any new clients, but if you are, what's the best way for clients to reach you? Or if not, what's the best way for them to find some of the books that you publish to, um, you know, to be better educated as investigators uh, and, and general public as to, you know, what you've experienced over the years? Well, I have a website. It's it's really difficult, www.kittyhaley.com. I spell Haley, H-A-I-L-E-Y. So it's K-I-T-T-Y-H-A-I-L-E-Y. 
and it's just my name. Um, you can Google my name. A lot comes up. And as a matter of fact, a lot, of, a lot comes up because I also do storytelling. So you might just find yourself looking at a YouTube video of my telling something about uh, one of the, the silly things that I did in the course of trying to do a serious investigation. Um, and I don't know. I'm... I don't know whether I'll take a new client until I find out who that client is, but I'm more than willing to talk to young investigators or curious people because I really do love my profession and I really do want people to do it right if they're going to do it. So, yeah, call me. Send me an email. It's great. Sounds good. That's a perfect way to end the show. Kitty, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us. For our listeners, thank you for listening. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please consider giving it a five-star review on whatever podcast platform you use to listen. As we continue to increase our listener base, we appreciate your positive reviews. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Is There Really Truth and Justice for All? We can be heard Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please join host Jeff Stein for another edition of the program next week. 